This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and for this evening we are giving a resume only of Paul's prison epistles. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a time and read Paul's epistle to Philemon. During this month of August, we have taken what might be called a refresher course, going over ground that we know fairly well, but giving us an opportunity of uh, looking at these things afresh, and also not disappointing those friends who are obliged to be away because of the holiday month. And what we have done is to survey the Acts of the Apostles, and now this evening we come to the last of these studies, which gives a survey of one set of Paul's epistles. Now the Acts of the Apostles we've seen is divided into three parts geographically. Jerusalem at the beginning, Rome at the other end, and Antioch halfway. And the insistence in the beginning is Jews only. In the, in the middle at Antioch, it was Jew and Gentile, for it's quoting Isaiah, since you count yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, no, we turn to the Gentiles. And then in the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, the all-day conference with the Jew, and then the salvation of God sent to the Gentiles, none hindering. The Acts of the Apostles not only can be looked at in those three ways, but it is the record of two ministries. It's Peter who dominates the first about twelve chapters. He comes into the story in Acts 15 and then is heard no more during the Acts. From the ninth chapter onwards, it's the Apostle Paul that begins to, as it were, dominate the rest of the story. So we have two ministries. But when we come to the Apostle Paul himself, we discover that he has two ministries. There's the ministry that he received on the road to Damascus, and there's the ministry that he received when the Lord said, I will again appear unto you, and he says he's done it. So that we discovered in the 20th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles that at Ephesus, the Apostle brought one ministry to an end, said they see his face no more, and told them that he was looking forward, I think we can say looking forward in that sense, to bonds and imprisonments, simply because it was the Lord's will, and in that he was going to receive a new revelation. He said the one thing that he was concerned about is that he might finish his course, Acts 20. And the last epistle he wrote, and the last chapter of that last epistle, he says, I have finished my course. Isn't that lovely? Splendid. Well, now we've read this evening, just in reading round, the epistle to Philemon. Now, this is a glimpse at a private letter. You see, the other letters were written by Paul to churches, to companies, and as far as we know, some of them were duplicated. Because you do know that there is a little argument goes on with some folks, whether we should call it the epistle to the Ephesians, the epistle to the Laodiceans, or what? Well, it doesn't seem to be worth the bother, because 
you could be perfectly certain that most of the epistles were transcribed and rewritten. They had no printing press, they couldn't ring up Mr. Canning and see what he's going to do about it, all written by hand, but valuable. And so there are some manuscripts where instead of saying the church or to the saints which are at Ephesus, it simply says to the saints which are, and leaves it blank. So it's obvious that it was a circular. It could be read by others beside the church at Ephesus because that was only one assembly. But here we have Philemon, a private epistle. And what a lovely little letter it is, isn't it? You see, here's the man on very delicate ground. Because if you trans- if you put yourself back into the days when Paul lived, a Roman had complete control of a slave to the power of death. And a runaway slave, according to Roman law, was punishable by death. May sound very hard to us, but that was the rule, and that was the law. And now he's writing to this child of God about a runaway slave. And he's pleading for him. And I could almost see the grim face, first of all, of Philemon, reading this letter, knows what he's leading up to, this slave who'd run away. And then he says, oh, here's Paul again, because Paul has a little play on words. Do you notice that? Not because he was trifling. It was his makeup, And he's reminding Philemon, if you look, Verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and me. Well, I suppose we could read that and say, well, what's the idea? What's the, what's the point? Well, you see, the point is this, that Onesimus means, his name means, one who was profitable. And he turned out to be very unprofitable, because he ran away and left his master. But always oh, says, what a mighty change has come by the grace of God. The one whose name was profitable turned out to be unprofitable and now he's profitable to you and to me. And then you see how he pleads with this man. He says, I'm a bond slave. That's the word prisoner. I'm, I'm a bond man. I know what prison is. And I'm such as one, such a one as Paul the aged. That word aged gives us the word presbyter. But don't say that Paul was a Presbyterian because that doesn't mean it. A Presbyterian is only one who is ruled by elders. Elders are bishops. So the the trouble is that an Episcopalian, which is to do with a bishop, and a Presbyterian, which has to do with an elder, are just fighting one another over the same word that has two spellings. (laughs) So we needn't worry about that. But it also means an elder in the sense of age. Now, it's difficult to be sure of the age of the Apostle, but round about 60-something, he was an old man. And we could well understand, can't we, that going through what he had gone through for his Lord's sake, in those 30 years of his ministry, roughly, it had worn him right down, almost to the edge of the grave. So he, he, he's not above pleading his case. And then again, you see, that little uh, bit again, he said, um, if, he's, if he owes you anything, I've written with my own hand, I will repay, 
then almost under his breath he says, hmm, but at the same time I'm not telling you how much you owe me. And that would make Philemon think, yes I do, don't I? So I don't say we've got to write our letters like this to one another. Let's be natural. Uh, but you see, interwoven in all the, uh, the apostles' um, ministry and correspondence and life, he couldn't get away from the fact that he belonged to the Lord. And the Lord had been gracious to him. Well now, Philemon we leave to itself because it's not out to teach any doctrine. It's only giving us a, a lovely little glimpse of the character of Paul himself and his teaching. But we want to give an opportunity, at least, to those of us who are here and those who will be listening, to see that Paul's epistles fall into two very distinct groups. And there are seven epistles in each group. And then if you want to go a bit further, the other epistles that are written by James and John and Jude and Peter count up to seven all over again. Now that may be accidental, but it looks as though it's intended. Now the seven epistles written by Paul when he was a free man, I'm not sure of their order, but I myself put Galatians first, then 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then we come to Romans, or Hebrews possibly in the middle, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and ending up with Romans. I may be wrong in the order, but that's the number of epistles that were written by Paul when he was a free man. <coughs> then he became the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, and declares that as the prisoner he received a new revelation. And they are found, that revelation is found for the first time in Scripture, in the epistle to the Ephesians. Then it is supplemented in Colossians, it is given a, another slant in Philippians, and finally it ends up in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Philemon being in the middle, being one that has to, to do with personal things rather than doctrinal. But it's a good thing to know that these high and holy doctrines can impinge and have a reference to homely things. And Onesimus, a runaway slave, and say that he's profitable. It might be useful just to be sure that Onesimus is included by the Apostle writing to the Colossians. He says, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother, and a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate, and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So he's sending him back with this epistle, you see. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. Well, here's another one that turned tail, and caused an awful split between Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas wanted his nephew to accompany them, and Paul said, not so, not anybody who turns tail like that. But here he's back again. He can be restored, you see. Oh, yes, he's Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, who's now beloved brother, going trusted with this epistle. And Marcus, no animosity, brought back again when the time comes. And then how sad. The last one to be mentioned in verse 14, Mute the beloved physician, and Demas. That's all he says about Demas. 
when he next mentions him, he says, Demash hath forsaken me. So you see, apart from grace, where should we be? Demash, who stood with the apostle, he's forsaken him, having loved this present world. Onesimus, who was a slave and ran away, came in contact with the apostle in Rome and was now sent back a beloved brother. So the story goes on. Well now, the first epistle in the canon of scripture and the first epistle that we must study is the epistle to the Ephesians. And we find that balanced by the epistle to the Colossians. But no vain repetition. You will notice I've put just on the board a little outline of the way in which these epistles group. Ephesians, I put the word mystery. Colossians, I put the word mystery. Well, you say, why don't you put the word mystery again, Philippians? Do you know why, friends? For the simple reason it's not there. That's good. That's a good answer, isn't it? So now, when you want to know the positive teaching concerning what is this dispensation of the mystery, you go to Ephesians. And then you get it supplemented by Colossians. But there's another feature. In Philippians, he turns aside from that which is sheer gift and sheer grace to tell you that over and above this wonderful calling, over and above this hope of this calling, which is yours by grace, which can never be forfeited, there is the possibility of running a race and winning a prize. Now, when you have a race and a prize, you cannot be certain. Because if you're certain, well, there's no race in it and there's no prize about it. There must always be a little element of uncertainty. So he says, not that I'm already perfect, not in this sense. He was absolutely accepted in the beloved in that sense. But he says, so far as touching the tape at the other end, not as though I were already perfect, but forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to the things which are before, according to that white mark in the middle, he says, I'm running for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. When you come to Colossians, you'll find that in the centre of that epistle, he not only he leaves the question of the high calling and the mystery, and he says, beware, lest anyone beguile you of your reward. Now the word for prize in Philippians is the word bravion, B-R-A-B. And the word beguile you of your reward is catabraduo, B-R-A-B. So you see he's putting his finger on the prize. He says you can be tripped up over that. And he shows you why. Being misled by philosophy, tradition, vain deceit, practicing all sorts of austerities upon yourself, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are the perish in the using, and not holding the head, which is Christ. So he's linking in Colossians the emphasis in Ephesians of Christ the head with the emphasis to on the running the prize in Philippians. So we've got now Philippians, uh, Ephesians, and Colossians, and Philippians. But there's another feature. When you open the epistle to the Philippians, you're met strangely with the words bishops and deacons. The very first verse contains three words, as far as my memory goes. We'll refresh it. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So you see, there is no merit in disorder. There is no merit in us today boasting we haven't got bishops and deacons. That's like the cat and the ringing of the bell. You know, they, it was a, what was it? They, they got a bell on the cat because it was an awful nuisance, but it began to get rather proud of it. We should have bishops and deacons. But I don't expect we'll ever get any in our friends. No. We're living in a day when the second epistle to Timothy comes into force. And there the emphasis upon thyself, thyself, thyself. The unity is still in existence, blessed be God in spirit. But it's very, very difficult to discover it down here in evidence. But when we come to these epistles, the pastoral epistles as we call them, 1 Timothy, Titus and 2 Timothy, there you speak, you see, the apostle is speaking to a church which had bishops and deacons. It tells you what sort of man a bishop should be. It doesn't speak about his university training, which may be very useful. It doesn't say he must have degrees after his name, which are very, very useful, I wish I had, I haven't got them. But it says a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And the reason why the husband of one wife is that in the early church when pagans were turned into Christians, a good many of them had had two wives or three. And it would have been a disaster to have said the moment a man became a Christian, he could say to two of his extra wives, well, good afternoon, I'm a Christian. No, he says you've got to put up with your three wives even though you're a Christian. But you cannot be a bishop. That would be wrong. That's all. I do remember an Indian chief being asked by um, the President of the United States when he was going to get rid of his extra wives. Because he's now a Christian. And he said, Mr. President, if you'd like to go and select them and tell them to go, I'm willing. He wouldn't. You see, it's all very well. So there it is. Don't you make that a pattern for yourself to work on. It was for the state of the times. And so we have these epistles. Ephesians takes us back before the foundation of the world. And most of you know that the word foundation in Ephesians 2, the temple built upon the foundation, that is the Greek word themedion. But you won't find that word foundation in Ephesians 1 when it says chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That is the word kataboli. And the word kataboli is made up of two parts. Kata meaning down and bano to throw, to throw down. Or as we put it, to overthrow. And then if you like to pursue this, it'll give you a headache but it's worth it. And I'm not bothering about people who object to these things who've never done it. I've looked at every single reference to that particular word catabello in the Septuagint version and I've looked at every single Hebrew word that it translates and there isn't one exception. It always means coming up with a battering ram to knock a building over but never means putting a foundation in the builder. So we have in Ephesians 1 chosen in him before the overthrow of the world whatever that turns out to be. And most of us know that we find it in Genesis 1 verse 2. So right before that catastrophe, which was a matter of judgment, 
because Jeremiah says so, and Isaiah says so, and when those two prophets say so, that's good enough for me and you, that before that took place, God's purpose had envisaged the church that was going to occupy those very heavenly places from which by transgression principalities and powers had fallen. God had a purpose and he knew every move but he didn't tell everybody about it. That is why it's called a secret or a mystery. Not that it's mysterious. Because you'll find attached to the word mystery that I make, make it known that you may understand, that you may see. As soon as you're told it's as easy to understand that as any other part or as difficult whichever way you like to put it. So we've got, you see, an alter, alternation in these epistles of these two things. Sheer grace, the gift of God, and then, after that, a reminder that there is something that you can do with that grace, if only you will. Will you look at Colossians to illustrate the two together? Chapter 1 of Colossians. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And then if you'll turn to chapter four, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 onwards, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Now in the same epistle, he thanks God for making us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light as sheer gift. Here he says that by faithful service to an earthly master even, you may receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that do it wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. But you say, oh, no, no, that can't be said about the church of the one body. They are a peculiar people. Well, they are a peculiar people, for they're not there. He says, and there is no respect of persons to you and to me with regard to that. So when you're dealing with reward and prize, you're on one ground. When you're dealing with gift and grace, you're on another. And I would remind you, as I remind myself, there are quite a number of words in the New Testament that are translated gift. But when you read in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That word gift is used everywhere else of a gift that a man brings to God in worship. Or a priest offers to God in worship. It's the one exception where it's God who comes down and offers to me on those French, it almost sounds blasphemy to say so. But it's wonderful truth. He brings to me, instead of me bringing anything to him, all this wonderful, gracious gift. So you see, there's a balance. I have this marvellous gift. I'm accepted in the beloved. He says, now, are you going to just stand there? Won't you please me a little bit? Won't you run this little race? Won't you see if you could win that prize? Because if you do, I shall be winning a prize too. I shall be so glad you get it, as I've said before. When a child comes home from school having a prize, well, there's about three or four got the prize. There's the boy himself, there's father and mother and whoever else is there. They're all so glad, so with Christ. 
So it's not merely forgetting the prize, but all that's associated with it. Now Colossians again, to see this double sword, double line of teaching. He says, verse 21 of chapter 1 of Colossians, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. There he says, is my position. There is yours. In the body of his flesh through death, nothing you've done, just by that sacrificial work of Christ, he is going to present you holy, unblameable, unreprovable. The word unblameable means without blemish and takes you to the sacrifice, the priest, the altar, and the tabernacle. And the unreprovable is the word that means the law court. So in both cases, whether it's the court of law or the courts of God's house, you're absolutely accepted in the beloved. Now, would you believe it? Before almost the ink is dry, in chapter 1, he says in verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That we may present every man, and warning them about something. So you see, it's one thing to be presented in Christ, and another thing to uh, be so in harmony with his word, so walking worthy, that this man, who is responsible for your salvation, as a preacher, can present you perfect in that day as well. And so you'll find that this is shared in Colossians with another fellow servant, chapter 4. Epiphras, verse 12, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So here's the Apostle warning that you may be presented perfect. Here's this man sharing the ministry by praying you may stand worthy, be complete. And also, at the very same epistle, and without the possibility of thought that there's any uh, contradiction, he says you are already presented by the finished work of Christ. So the two walk together. There's no contradiction. The second epistle of Timothy, in many ways, echoes Philippians. In Second Timothy, we have that principle, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then once again, there's a good many speculations as to the word what right division means. And if you care to look up different translations, you'll find all manner of ways of translating it. But you see, when Paul wrote those words, rightly dividing, and when he wrote them to a man named Timothy, he didn't have to explain them. You say, how do you know that? Well, I put two and two together like this. Timothy lived in Asia Minor. Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewess for a mother. And he was taught from an infant the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Scriptures that they would have in that part of the world at that time would be the Old Testament Greek version, the Septuagint. And that Septuagint is quoted as many times in the New Testament as the Old Testament. And sometimes it's quoted differently from the Old Testament. So it was a very valuable translation. 
Now, Timothy was trained by his parents, or by his mother, and by his grandmother. And we are certain, if we are certain of anything, that a Jewish mother would not omit, when she was training her little son, some of the Proverbs that were written for such a one's guidance. So Timothy, the moment he read the words in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing, he didn't go running around asking everybody what it meant. He never bothered, he knew. And this is where he would have come across the exact words in his Old Testament. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understandings. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall rightly divide thy paths. That's how he would read the book of Proverbs. Our version says, he shall direct thy paths. Well, direct means rightly divide. You divide the word direct up and see. R-E-C-T, what's that? Rect. Well, what's rect? Rectangle, it's a right angle, isn't it? And what's D-I mean in front of it? To divide. All right, direct means rightly divide. So you see, it simply means walking along the pathway of this world or the pathway of the scriptures or the pathway of your service and observing the signpost. And as you go along this pathway of life given you by Christ, you will see forks in the road as there are nearly, or nearly all roads. And you did have no bother, you just look at the signpost and you look on it, it says, Jew, Gentile. Well, if you know how to spell, you say, oh, that's all right for me. And further down you see, Kingdom, Church. Or you see, Peter, Paul. Or you see, Heaven or Earth. And so, that's all you need. And you needn't see them all at once, you just see them as you come to them. It's as simple, or, or I must be careful, I was going to say, it's as simple as driving a car. But some of you know that would be the utter complexity if I started it. But it's just as sim- simple of watching the signpost when you get to it is rightly dividing the word of truth in a matter of time, in a matter of place, in a matter of person, in a matter of whether there's been a change in the administration on the part of God, whether it's law or grace. Every Protestant rightly divides the word of truth. Otherwise he would mix up the law of Moses with the grace of the gospel. So he's doing it. Well then, continue to do it, for then, by so doing, you will not in any measure be ashamed of your work when you stand to give uh, an account before the Lord in that day. So Second Timothy emphasises right division. Now Philippians doesn't say right division. Uh, let's look at that book, shall we? Just uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more, in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent. But you'll notice the margin, you may try the things that differ. See, the words have that double meaning. If you try things that differ, and you've got ordinary common gumption, then you will approve the things which are more excellent. So either translation is good, but you see, it's balancing. You rightly divide the word of truth according to 2 Timothy 2.15 and you try the things that differ according to Philippians and it comes to the same thing. Try the things that differ. It's one of the soundest approaches to any study. Not merely the Bible, but anything that you have to master in the sense of subject. Observe the differences. And if you knew all the differences, 
you've got the complete thing in front of you. So now, here, where are we getting this time? Well, let me illustrate it. I've illustrated it before, so there's no need for me to invent another one. This man who is coming from outer space, you know, he lands here somewhere, and he wants to take back with him to Mars or Mercury or wherever he's come from, uh, what a man is, you see, a man. So somebody says a man, and he's been listening to the wireless, you know, and he, he learns that he's either animal, vegetable, or mineral. So he says a man is an animal. An animal who eats, and drinks, and sleeps. Can anyone find fault with that? Is it true? It is, isn't it? That's absolutely basic. You belong to the animal kingdom, so far as the human side is concerned, and the three basic things you must have, you eat, and you drink, and you sleep. But by the time that man's gone back to Mercury, or Venus, or wherever he's come from, and tells them that a man down here is an animal that eats, and drinks, and sleeps, well, they may think of a cat, because that's the definition of a cat. The cat is an animal that eats, and drinks, and sleeps. But now, come to my idea. Tell the man the differences. Don't say all the things that are the same. Say, a man is a member of the animal kingdom. But he wears clothes. He cooks his food. He uses tools. That's three things only. And he's lifted him out from all the rest of creation. The differences make the man. Worships God. Has a reasoning faculty. Speaks an articulate language. See? Put the differences down. And when you've got them all, you've got the man. Do that with the scriptures. Not pull the book to pieces in order to find distinctions, but see the distinctions and build up the church of the one body by the things that differ. The church of the one body differs from Israel, for they are not a kingdom that are going to be a kingdom of priests on earth. No. They are not inheriting promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. No. There never was a promise made to them that they would have the man to promise. No. You see, you're beginning to build up a different calling altogether. And then when you get a positive statement that they are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God, you begin to see that this is a distinctive calling. You dare not smudge them together. So Philippians is balanced by Second Timothy by the emphasis upon prize, crown, try the things that differ, rightly divide the word of truth. And so you can go on with ease. They're well worth study for their own selves, but they're even yield more by this comparison of one bit book with another. And that brings me also to take an, another verse from another epistle, because in the course of our ministry we have insisted so many, many times on the principle of right division. It ought to be balanced by the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13, that you look on every word in the New Testament or Old Testament as words which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. So you rightly divide the word of truth in all its separate parts, and you bring all together again that are comparable, and by those two methods you arrive at an understanding of what God means. And without being silly independent, you are independent of the opinions of others. When you've done that, when you've rightly divided the word of truth, when you've tested it right out like that, when you've compared things that differ, when you've recognized the fact that the words you deal with are words of the Holy Spirit, then you can say, I speak that which I do know. 
Well, here we have then just sketched out before us these seven epistles. In the, um, going back again to Ephesians and Colossians, you won't read a word about principalities and powers in Philippians. But in Colossians, as well as in Ephesians, it speaks about far above all principality and power and might and dominion. It speaks about having spoiled principalities and powers. It speaks about principalities and powers learning by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So we're very, very much associated with principalities and powers. But never angels. Never angels. The moment you start the Old Testament and get a little way into it, an angelic ministry comes forward. And there it steps right the way through practically the whole story of the Old Testament. It's there at the birth of Christ, angels. It's in the Gospels. It's in the Gospels right to the end, to the resurrection, to the ascension, in the Acts of the Apostles, right there, angels. And then stops. Angels belong to Israel. There are more angels mentioned in the one epistle of the Hebrews and the rest of Paul's writings. Angels. We have nothing to do with angels. Angels are the ministers or servants of God in heaven. But principalities and powers, thrones and dominions are the aristocracy of glory. That's where we belong. Not that we're going to boast except we boast in the grace that places us there. So Colossians and Ephesians balance there with principalities and powers. But Philippians doesn't mention that. That's on a different line altogether. And so we have a quite a number of features that we do well to remember. I've already emphasised that the word mystery comes, as you know many times, in Ephesians and again in Colossians. In uh, every one of these epistles, except, um, well I'll say every one, in five of these epistles, out of seven, we read the word prison. Sometimes it's translated bonds. Ephesians says, I therefore the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God that's been given to me. Philippians says that all Caesar's household have heard this good news, and I suffer unto bonds for the sake of the gospel. Colossians says that he suffers unto bonds, and he says, remember my chain, remember my chain. Ephesians says, I conduct, I conduct an embassy in a chain. I have a feeling that Paul, even as a prisoner, with a chain on his wrist, was doing a quiet little smile to himself. He says, all these other people have got their offices and their regalia, well, I've got mine. I conduct an embassy in a chain. You can't keep a man down, you know, when he's like that. Like I've often reminded you when you read Second Timothy, when he says, I suffer trouble as an evildoer. But the word of God is not bound. Now you can be very, very precise and read it very nicely, you know. I suffer trouble as an evildoer and the word of God is not bound, you know, like that. But you can't imagine the Apostle Paul saying that. He says, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, like this, but the word of God is not bound, like that, see. Get on with that. You can't bind that. He says, I'm not praying for an open door to, for me to escape. I'm praying for an open door for the word to get out, whether I'm in prison or not. Doesn't matter so much. That's the man we're dealing with. And so we've got this emphasis that Ephesians is a prison epistle. Philippians is a prison epistle. Colossians is a prison epistle. 
Philemon is a prison epistle, though it's written privately. And then the last one is 2 Timothy, a prison epistle. So those give us all that we've got in the New Testament or Old Testament as to what is this peculiar dispensation which was brought in by God when Israel went out into their present blindness. They're still in it. But the time is running out. Everything points, as far as we can see from prophecy, that it won't be very long before this present secret dispensation will come to an end. The last member of the body of Christ will be gathered in and then what was laid down in the end of the Acts will be picked up again and it will run on to its appointed end as we find in the book of the Revelation and so on. But that, of course, is another story. I hope you haven't been disappointed in the fact that we've just skimmed through these epistles, but that's what we endeavour to do during this period when we are marking time a little bit till the holiday season is over. And I commend to you this little season, this little series of the Acts of the Apostles and the epistles that belong to our special calling, the prison epistles, that you may have the joy of knowing that God has spoken a word to the poor, outcast, uh, Gentile, who was an alien from the citizenship of Israel, and a stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, is so blessed that he is potentially seated with Christ, where he now sits, is accepted in the Beloved, and is a member of the very body of Christ, the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. These are words that we can utter, but whether we can get to the depth of them or scale the height of them, it's like the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that we might be filled right up to all the fullness of God.